on behalf of Yarra City Council, I'd like to acknowledge the Wawundjeri Woiwurrung people as the traditional owners and true sovereigns of the land now known as Yarra. We also acknowledge the significant contributions made by other Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people to life in Yarra. We pay our respects to elders from all nations here today, and to their elders, past, present, and future. You're listening to a Yarra Libraries podcast. Today, we're pleased to bring you Sam Van Zweden in partnership with Kill Your Darlings for their first First Book Club of 2021. In conversation with Brunswick Bounds Ellen Cregan, Sam spoke about her debut, Eating With My Mouth Open, food memory, wellness culture, her writing practice, and her route to publication. A note that this conversation does mention disordered eating, and that should you need them, you'll find the numbers for Lifeline and the Butterfly Foundation in our episode notes. There's also the occasional explicit language, so just be aware if you're listening with young children. Hi everyone, I'm Ellen, and as Megan said, I'm your host for tonight. So excited to be back for 2021 at First Book Club. I've been awaiting this moment, and while it's a shame we can't be meeting in in person, I know there's some people in here probably who wouldn't have been able to make it in person, so how great Zoom. So... Sam, I'm going to ask you to start with a little reading for the, from the book for people who haven't had a chance to read it yet. So if you wanted to get going with that whenever, that'd be awesome. Absolutely. Thanks, Ellen. Thank you. Um, I'm going to read from chapter 10 of my book, Eating With My Mouth Open. There is aspiration in eating. Consumption and nourishment are so full of possibility. This is such an easy story to find, hidden barely under the surface of the stories I, and probably you, grew up with. I start spotting the moments where food speaks and it's almost impossible to stop. Oliver Twist approaches his master with his bowl raised into the air. Please, sir, I want some more. Oliver has been nominated by the other boys and asks for more because they want him to. It is a dare, a challenge. He isn't shy. He doesn't demure. I want some more. But he's also not really asking for the food. Mary Poppins' spoonful of sugar is a metaphor for making horrible tasks more enjoyable through play. If the spoon had been full of actual sugar, I suspect Michael and Jane would have felt comforted and motivated all the same. When Jo March pulls out a luxurious pear from her new letterbox, a tiny house which has been filled with food, perhaps the ultimate comfort, we love Laurie too. Even when Beth is dying, it's food that brings the warmth and softness. You drink up all that good broth, Joe says to her, spooning soup into her sister's mouth with all the care and tenderness in the world. She feeds Beth as if it can help stave off death, who blows in through the window in just a second, as if all the good broth in the world could help at all. Maria, in The Sound of Music, lists her favourite things, which include crisp apple strudel and schnitzel with noodles. It's not even the specific tastes. The memory of those things is enough. Maria's heart is breaking, her faith wavers, but she can always remember her favourite things. These redemptive food stories are everywhere. Elizabeth Gilbert, carb-loading her way back into her body and her life. Lady and the Tramp, chewing and slurping their shared spaghetti, culminating in that iconic kiss. Julie Powell, following in Julia Child's footsteps, using attempted mastery of gourmet French cookery as a shield against all the uncontrollable things life keeps serving up. Despite all the period costumes, dubbed voices and orchestral accompaniment, as well as the fact that some of these characters aren't even human, these films are so familiar to me and I love them for it. 
I relate to them. They reflect the things I hope food will live up to, and sometimes it fulfills those hopes. This is what I'm reaching for when I turn to food for comfort. In these films and in many others, food stands as a shining beacon of wellness, happiness, togetherness, or at the very least, as a comfort against great hurt. Everywhere I look, someone tells me that food is an answer to almost anything. Heartbreak, celebration, difficulty communicating. Food is presented as the saviour, the ultimate contentment and solace. So many stories exist about what food means that it's impossible not to attach narratives to what we're eating. Celebration food, conference food, workplace baking, family meals, eating alone, delivery food, comfort food, or my sympathies baked into a casserole stored in the freezer for when grief is overwhelming. The weight of all these stories, of all these different ways of eating, means that, of course, we expect to feel a particular way around food and when and then reward or punish ourselves based on whether we're living up to those stories. These are the standards my disappointment is measured against when food fails to meet my expectations. These are the stories I wish I could anchor myself in when food becomes something to worry over. Food speaks. It intones. Low, calm. It'll be okay. Thank you so much, Sam. That was really Thanks. beautiful. Um, much like Maria, food is one of my favourite things. So <laughs> <laughs> I was... I'm just going to say at the top of this conversation that it's going to be really hard for me not to like gush about this book the whole time that we're talking because I loved it so much and it really food is such an interesting thing because like you know it's absolutely necessary to all of our lives yet it sort of has so much meaning in it that a lot of us don't tend to interrogate so I just love this book so much I'm just getting that out of the way now I'm sure I'll say it again 56 (laughs) times um So my first question when I do these events is often kind of a bit of shop talk because it fascinates me. Can you tell me about the book's journey to publication from like the first idea to the lovely finished thing that we have here today? Uh, It was quite a long one. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So it it took, I think, six or seven years end to end. Um, I, it was originally uh, my honours project. So I was at RMIT doing my honours year. Um, And what I was trying to figure out in that project was whether I could write something that could imitate the way that your brain works when you eat and remember food. Um, So trying to recreate brain processes on the page. Um, So that was 2014. um, And after that, I think I, I took... I took the idea to the Wheeler Centre and I had a hot desk fellowship there, um, which was hugely useful. Um, after that, I entered the Scribe Nonfiction Prize, got shortlisted for that, um, which meant that I got a judge's report, which was also hugely useful. So I think I was really lucky along the way to have had many people sort of putting their, fin- putting their finger in the pie. <laughs> um, <laughs> that sort of had, had a bit of a hand in its, in its creation. Um, Post-scribe, I, it's hard to remember all the things now, Ellen. <laughs> um, I had a mentorship with Fiona Wright, um, who awesome. wrote Small Acts of Disappearance, and she was incredibly wonderful and generous. Um, uh, and sometime after that, <laughs> he um, entered the KYD Unpublished Manuscript mm. Award. Um, and that was kind of unique in that when you shortlist for that, you get some time away at Varuna, which most shortlistings don't 
give you anything. Um, so to have been blessed with that was absolutely incredible. Um, Varuna complete with on-site chef Sheila who cooks for you every night, tends, <laughs> tends to your every need. Um, yeah, so that, that was that was really useful as well. And post Varuna, after I found out that I'd won the competition, I um, was in touch with New South Publishing who um, were interested in the book and, and took it on. Oh, well, what a journey. <laughs> I love when I hear that someone's honours project became a book. It just makes me feel so much joy. And I hear it really often in these um, first book club meetings. It's, it's kind of a nice thing. Um, it's it's quite a year that like you really have to I think in the same way that you have to sort of really interrogate what it is that you're doing to write grant proposals and that sort of thing an honours project makes you do a lot of that work so I think you come out of it with a really solid solid shape yeah because we like I feel like writers very often might have a great idea but like why do you have that idea what do you want to do with that idea and you're right honours pushes you into really sort of figuring out all those little niggly bits yeah yeah. Um, so the passage you read was sort of very, shows the kind of side of the book that engages with a lot of like pop culture stuff. But this is a really personal book about you and your life and, and a lot of the sort of, you know, traumas and grief and things like that you, that you've been through. What has it been like releasing such a deeply personal book into the world for other people to see? Very vulnerable. Yeah. Um, the process of writing it is vulnerable, but in a very different way. Um, I think now it's handing it over to readers to partly to bring their own stories to it, which can sometimes be really heavy. Um, but also it's not just my story. It's also my family story. So making space for them to make sense of it. And yeah, it's, it's a, it's a very vulnerable thing to do. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, I, yeah, that would be one of the things that I would struggle with so much and why I may never write a book, who knows. Um, and the other thing about this book is I would say overall it, it is a, it's a really joyful book, but it does get into some territory that is pretty serious and there are some themes that are pretty dark. How did you manage to write such a joyful book that has so many periods of really sort of intense themes and, and a lot of darkness? kind of wrote it thematically so I, I definitely had a period where writing the darker bits was easier for me and other periods where I just needed to inject some light into it because I think narrative shape narrative shape needs the playoff between darkness and light mm. but to do that you, like you don't do that naturally when you're just telling a story particularly if your story involves a bunch of trauma um it tends towards the dark. So, but at the same time, um, I, I had um, what I what I referred to as the hungry edit, um, mm. where I went through and was just able to expand on food detail. It was one of the reports that come back to me and said, we need more, like we need more um, visceral, like more body detail in this. And I thought, yeah, of course, of course. Um, so I spent, you know, a week picking out all of the food scenes and thinking more deeply about how things smelled and tasted and um you know the reasons that that certain foods are so joyous um and and pulling out those details so it definitely happened in blocks uh yeah <laughs> and was 
you know, as, as I said before, there, there are some really um, intense passages of, of things that have happened in your personal life that are in the book. Did you sort of find you had to weave self-care practices into your writing practice? Yes. Um, I love my therapist. What can I say? Yeah, that's really great. <laughs> um, yeah, and I think it's really important as well to separate the writing and the therapy because the writing, I think the, the writing can be cathartic but not for me. Mm. Um, so I hope that the book is cathartic for other people that need to see themselves and their own traumas represented, but I don't think that it should be cathartic for me as the writer. That's what my therapy is for. Um, so se- sort of separating those out sort of helped me manage them and also just asking a lot of people that had had similar experiences how they dealt with it. Um, so um, that mentorship with Fiona Wright was amazing because she wrote a book about having an eating disorder and sort of putting, I guess, intellectual frames around mm. ideas of food and um, and hunger that I was able to ask her a lot of questions about how how do we how do we deal with these things? How do we take care of ourselves at the same time as making sense of of really difficult stuff? I've been struggling to explain your book to people when I've been trying to force them to buy it and read it um, over the past week. But I think (laughs) Fiona Wright is such a good comparison because it is that really, you know, like this is a very intellectual book and the ideas are really thought out and really like you've really traveled through every idea. It's not that sort of diaristic style of memoir, which is great, but that's just not what it is. But yeah, I hadn't actually thought of the Fiona Wright comparison because what you guys do is so similar in the, in, as you say, the framework sort of coming around this like little beautiful kernel of a personal experience. She, she's, I, I mean, I'm, I'll take the comparison, but also <laughs> I've, I very much am held up by her and um, she opened the door for a different kind of writing about the body in Australia. Mm. And I don't think there would have been the same kind of space or permission for me to have done this work without her have, having first written um, small acts of disappearance which is such a wonderful book like I've, it is. I've got to reread it <laughs> do um so why did you want to write about food gosh uh I think <laughs> big question yeah I think I couldn't not write about food I found myself coming back to food um again and again and even before so some of the chapters that are in the book are earlier things that I'd written for um, uni assignments and um, that turned into magazine pieces. Um, So I'd I'd written earlier about uh, spending some time in my brother's kitchen, um, which was based on a uni assignment that made us do a piece of immersion journalism, which is um, the journalist puts themselves as a fly on the wall in a situation that they normally wouldn't have access to and tells a story from sort of within within the situation. Um, so I, for that assignment, really felt like I didn't have anything um, really compelling that I could do, but I was drawn to um, the heat and the movement and the energy that's in kitchens. And because my dad and my brother are both chefs or my dad was a chef, um, I've always been really drawn to this sort of mysterious side of their 
careers. Um, so that piece gave me like sort of opened the door. And I realized that while I was writing about food for that, I was also writing about my relationship with my brother and the things that we can and can't say and the things that we use food to say in those situations. Um, so when I, when I went into my honors project, I started writing about food and kind of came up with something that was almost a menu of memories. Um, so I, I was very um, procedural, I guess, about, you know, here are the things that I remember um, and here are the foods that they're attached to. And that was a way for me to initially build the story, but then it sort of spun out to this other more iterative, less, less linear thing. And I love how much of your family is in this book because food and family I think to most families probably there's like a very strong connection there and each one is so completely unique as well and yours absolutely is and it was really interesting to like kind of think about my own like family's relationship to food while I was reading this book and then think about how it might differ to other people's like how my partner's family is around food and it yeah it's one of those things that's so personal yet so universal. It's interesting yeah I have the benefit of um having step family so and I didn't meet them until I was or they didn't come into my life until I was I'd moved out of home so entering into their food rituals sort of part way through my life was really eye-opening of oh other people really do this very differently to the way that we do but also not so differently um yeah it's it's so specific but yeah you're right very specific very universal (laughs) Something that I've found really, well, it's not really strange, but I guess in my upbringing, it was strange. My mum has a real thing about not shaming food and not not bringing that into it at all and was very strict about other family members not bringing food shame onto me and my sisters. And when I kind of got a bit older, I realised like people's mums would say things to them about what they were eating or their body. And I was like, what? Mm. I was so shocked. And to realise that's like, I've had that extreme privilege of like not being brought up that way. That was really like a rude awakening to me and yeah reading this book again just made me think about all this stuff of like how we make so many positive connections and also negative connections through food in our upbringing and our family Mm. I think especially with kids yeah deciding not to bring diet culture into your home has to be a really intentional decision like it sounds like it was for your mum that yeah a decision not to think about it is a decision to allow it so Your mum sounds like a warrior. I love it. (laughs) Uh, She's a character. Um, (laughs) So writing this book that does really get into that nitty gritty of food and bodies and all of the stuff around that, did you sort of, did it change your relationship with your, sorry, did you change the way you thought about your relationship to food or did you notice any changes there? Absolutely. Um, I think when I started writing the book, like I said, it was it was very much um, that procedural menu, uh, pulling out the memory thing. Um, but as I kept going, I realised that I kind of had an option. There are two there are two main stories that we get to tell about food in society. One is that it's joyful and it's for celebration and connection and it's how you show people that you love them and um, you want to care and nurture for them. Um, But the other one that we don't really tell or that we pretend doesn't exist is about how food is risky and 
anxiety provoking, especially for women or people in mm. marginalised bodies. Um, but we we really shy away from that story. Um, so I think when I realised that actually in order to tell one story, I had to tell both stories was when I started to interrogate my own relationship with food and realise that it wasn't so simple. Um, and looking back now on some of the stuff that I was living through while I was writing, I was doing some incredibly disordered eating and incredibly um, confused behaviour <laughs> around food while I, while I was working through this and sort of the, the living was the writing. So where I arrive at at the end of the book, I hate, I hate journeys and I hate recovery narratives, but that's kind of what it is. Mm. And it's not a... Um... You know, no, like no one could ever call this book a recovery narrative, really. Like it's, it's kind of just a, there is that beautiful portion at the end where you do talk about that looking, starting to heal that relationship or the sort of negative parts of that relationship. Um, I was just going to, I want to talk about all that stuff in a second, but I'm going to ask one more question that's like maybe going to be a bit unfair to you. I'm going to ask you to tell me about science. Um, so you do kind of get onto the the way that food and memory are connected into in the book, and I find that really fascinating. So can you like give us an elevator pitch summary of how the brain, like why does the brain like to attach food to a memory so much? This is a really big topic. Um, <laughs> yep, <laughs> it's, it's interesting in that when we eat things. I know for me and the, the more people I tell about what the book's about, they're like, oh, yeah, I've got that thing. I remember that thing that I ate when I was a kid and reminds me of, you know, all these other things and the auntie that made it for me. And so for me, that thing is um, sitting underneath the benches while my opa washed carrots and he was a market gardener. Um, and now whenever I smell carrots, I think of my grandfather um, and that, I think is really common. So we think of memory as being something that exists in like a mental filing cabinet that you can open and just pull out the bits that you want in a very voluntary way. But memory as we live it is actually far more embodied um, and involuntary. So I think most people are at least passingly familiar with the idea of Proust's Madeline um, and how he eats a Madeline and remembers seven volumes of his life um, from there. So it's it's not a new thing, um, but it's really interesting what the brain does. It's also interesting that your brain is capable. So smell plays a really um, important role in food memories, and mm. your brain is capable of filing away um, food smells as sort of this um, sort of a, a slide um, that goes into your brain can file up to 10,000 of them and it means that when you taste or smell something your memory for those things is so specific mm. that you can it's you know the difference between coke and diet coke you can you've got it in there um yeah which which I think allows for a, a hell of a lot of nuance in trying to recreate comfort foods and um familiar flavors because that's one of the threads that runs through this book, which I loved, is your dad trying to recreate foods from his childhood in in Holland. Is that right? Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. Yep. Um, 
yeah, it is. It is. Now that I'm thinking about it, I'm like, oh, if, if you give me a thing at a restaurant, I'm like trying to guess the spices. Like, what does this taste? Like, does this mean they've charred it? Like, what's going on? Um, but yeah, you're right. We could talk about memory for a very long time. It's a very, you know, there's just so many parts to it. But I think that was a really good answer Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> to, a, to a tricky question. Um, so there is a lot of discussion of diet culture and particularly wellness culture as well in this book, which is a, which is a sneaky one. Um, can you tell me a bit about your experience with this space as the diet culture and the wellness culture later on? Yes. Um, so growing up, I watched my mum diet for as long as I could remember. And I feel like that's pretty common for girls to see their mums dieting. Um, And while my mum was very careful about not giving me any messages about there being anything wrong with my body, the fact that she saw something wrong with her body kind of implied that there was something to be watchful of uh, when it came to food and body shape. Um, So diet culture... I guess in a nutshell, um, is about a, it's, it's the society that we live in that praises and rewards smallness, um, and makes that the goal. Um, it moralizes food. So there's good foods and there's bad foods. Um, there's this weird sort of disconnection between your body and the outside world, um, and your mental, um, life. You're meant to sort of weaponize your body against yourself and the whole thing is about being being at war um the thing about this is though that the diet industry is worth so much money uh so the best way that i have heard this explained was by um sarah harry who is a melbourne-based um body image activist and she said if you went to buy a watch And somebody that was selling you the watch said to you, this watch will work maybe 2% to 5% of the time. You would not buy the watch. But (laughs) this is what we're doing with diets. Um, They work maybe 2% to 5% of the time. And that's a a sort of generous estimate. Um, But we still keep buying into them. If diets worked, they would put themselves out of business, but they don't. Um, the diet industry in Australia is worth something like $500 million a year. And that's only weight loss programs, not the other stuff that feeds into it, which at the moment is what you were talking about with wellness culture. Mm. Um, so it's that idea that um, that there's an aesthetic to being to being well and that some food rules are good, so more food rules should be better well, wellness is a lot harder to explain than diet culture, I think. Um, I think we know what it looks like, though. It's, it's, mm. it's yoga and fasts and Instagram and wool and natural fibres. <laughs> it's, it's, it's really pernicious because it looks like something that you want until you sort of interrogate what it is that you're actually wanting. And that Instagram thing is so... it's just so evil like so my lockdown project last year was I did my Pilates teacher certification Mm -hmm. and so I've been thrown into this world of of like very much diet culture and wellness culture that I don't like and that's not to say it's all like that there's there's like lots of you know exercise movement stuff that isn't to do with weight loss or diet culture but I was talking to a friend of mine who's also a Pilates teacher and we were like why is is Pilates gram, you post two things. You either post the Pilates or you post your breakfast. 
like why is that why are those the two things that you can post on that page you can't post like you know it's not you don't see photos of people's pets but you see photos of their lunch like they've got a separate personal account yet on your exercise movement page like the food is always there we're like why does it have to be the normal thing like that just seems like it's got nothing to do with each other really like (laughs) that's the thing though I think wellness culture is just diet culture rebranded that's the scary thing that nobody's naming it but that's pretty much what it is absolutely and it's like people the hashtag switching from like being skinny is great to be strong fitzbo yeah fitzbo it's the same thing yeah it's just slightly yeah it it grosses me out still tells you that one body is worthy and others are not absolutely and as you say like diets for most people the way your body is is the way that your body is and there's absolutely nothing wrong with that and you've got you know the medical establishment obviously being pretty discriminatory and then throw in throw diet culture on top of that and it's just this you know it's a fight that no one could ever win it's it's truly horrible and terrible for people's self-esteem it is yeah yeah um there is like a very small part that I wanted to ask you about in the book where you talk about trauma-informed yoga um what is trauma-informed yoga and how has it sort of affected you as a Pilates instructor you might be a better person (laughs) to explain this I don't know anything about yoga um my understanding of trauma-informed yoga or my lived experience with trauma-informed yoga was to um it was about coming to movement in a way that honored my body um so learning how to move my body and view it with a sense of curiosity so I think there's a big um I think it's easy while moving your body in any way to sort of get really caught up in here's how it should look um Mm. particularly with yoga it's very like you know crank into this particular pose and doesn't matter if it feels bad like (laughs) too bad it looks right um whereas the trauma-informed yoga that I was doing was around um what the experience is of moving your body and also realizing when you get to the edge of what your body can do or what your brain can handle within your body and just watching it, not judging it as good or bad, just noticing where it is and letting that be. And it'll be different on another day. Um, It'll be different on the other side of your body, but just knowing those things makes it um, much easier to deal with the feelings when they come up in the world off the mat absolutely that sounds like a really nice practice to have and I I lied I do know a bit about yoga but um (laughs) it's one of those things where it's like people do get so obsessed with the outwards the asana the poses how you look but yoga is my yoga teachers are always like it's you can you can go access the breath anytime you need it like it's always there for you you don't have to be so focused on appearances you can just be sitting there in your chair being like, what am I feeling right now? How am yep. I breathing right now? And yep. that's a really nice thing to be able to do for your body and, that and is your brain. What were some of the books that were really important to the writing process for Eating With My Mouth Open? Uh, well, I've already mentioned Fiona Wright's amazing small acts of disappearance. Mm-hmm. Um, sorry, I'm just, I'm looking at my, this is the benefit of being at home. I can look at my bookshelves here ah, yes, <laughs> uh, yes. as to the things that I have picked up. Um, 
B. Wilson is an amazing um, UK journalist who writes food histories in such an incredibly compelling way. Um, they're so well-researched and her book, First Bite, was really interesting, um, a really interesting influence for the, the stuff that talks about childhood food memories and the ways that we carry those through our lives and the ways that we think about children's food as different to adults' food. Mm. Um, and yeah, just the ways that those experiences are really formative. Um, B, B, B. Wilson was amazing for that. Um, I came to Ruby Tando's Eat Up very late in the writing of this, yeah. so it was <laughs> it was pretty much cooked. Um, <laughs> but I found so much in common in that book that it was just incredible. Um, yeah trying to think what else mfk fisher was amazing she's a wartime food writer who wrote really beautifully she was american but she moved to france um, and she writes really beautifully about um, the people that have cooked for her and taught her about food um, and also just making do in a new country and with wartime shortages and um, honoring appetites and realizing mm. that cooking and feeding other people is kind of a superpower um yeah she she's amazing that sounds really good did you also read um, I'm just throwing my own books that I've associated now um Hunger by Roxane Gay I did I yeah. actually had some feelings about that one really oh, it's <laughs> yeah, a very intense book yeah it is um and I wasn't overwhelmingly in love with it okay and I don't I mean I liked it but I wasn't like shit yes <laughs> it's and it's more bodies than food that book I think it's more like a body going yeah. through the world yeah yes but also I I'm not the person that needs to feel represented by that book so totally yeah I think that's fine yeah absolutely um <laughs> I do just have one more question for you Sam before we wrap up for the night mm. I want to know again another really big question from Ellen what impact do you hope your book will have on its readers I hope I mean I hope it has small impacts like I hope people can sort of pick out why they have a particular niggling food memory um, and I hope second generation people can figure out what the weird thing is between their parents countries of origin and their own tastes for those foods um, I hope people understand why some foods make them so deliriously happy, but not other people. Um, but I think the bigger thing that I hope that it will do is that people can see themselves represented. Um, this is very much a write the book that you wish to see in the world um, thing. I didn't, I couldn't see my story represented um, anywhere when I was writing it. So I hope that it does that work for someone else. Well, I think from tonight, we already know it has done a little bit of that, which is awesome. And yeah, these are the stories that I want to read. And I think everybody should read like, this is a real, I mean, every book, I think has the opportunity to increase empathy in its reader. But this is especially one that like, it's really going to expand people's idea of what, you know, food and memory and bodies, like how that might affect another person. And yeah, I just think it's an awesome book and well done on writing it. I loved it. <laughs> Thanks, Ellen. <laughs> um, so that's all for tonight. Obviously, we are not in person and I cannot be your bookseller tonight, which I was going to be. So what I'm going to do is post a little link in the chat to if you want to buy Sam's book, 
the link is there to my workplace. Um, and then also there's a link there to the Kill Your Darlings, really wonderful short fiction collection, which is also a great read to go with Sam's book. Um, thank you so much Sierra Libraries for having us and thank you all for tuning in, for zooming in, could I say, is that is that very 2020 of me? And thank you, Sam. Thank you, Ellen. Thank you, KYD. Thank you, Yara Libraries. Thank you all for coming. <laughs> that was Sam Van Zweden in conversation with Ellen Cregan, presented in partnership with Kill Your Darlings. We run regular author talks at all branches of Yara Libraries and online, so please keep an eye on the website. For you, we would recommend Alistair Slavsky. At all times, but particularly her event with us on Wednesday, 21st of April. We also recommend buying a copy of Eating With My Mouth open from your local bookstore or placing a hold on one of our in-branch copies. Finally, don't forget the next Kill Your Darlings First Book Club, coming up on March 24th. You can book in for that discussion featuring Evelyn Araluen right now. We'll be back with another episode next week. In the meantime, Yarra Libraries loves eating and reading, but ask that you please refrain from leaving crumbs in the spines. Or at least shake them out. We'd really appreciate it. Happy reading.